I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share their real-life experiences and the tools they've learned to move forward and live their best lives. I'm Jenny Taylor. And I'm Michelle Scharf. Today we have with us Christine Steinquist. She has been a friend of mine, I don't know, Christine, how long has it been now? Eight years? Six years? Something like that, yeah. And we met because she was working on legislation to legalize medical marijuana. And I met her up at the Capitol. The moment I met her, I just felt a connection. But sitting through committee meetings and hearing parts of her story were really touching and also shocking in a lot of ways. So I wanted Christine to come on and really share why she became an advocate for medical marijuana. And that is by starting with introducing herself and telling us her story of her health journey. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle, for inviting me to come and share this story. It's been quite a journey, and we have been friends for quite a long time, and you've seen the political journey, but yeah. a lot of people didn't know about the journey that happened before. So thank you for providing me this opportunity to share that. Yeah, of course. I guess the best place to start is at the beginning. For me, the beginning, it really started when I was quite young. I had suffered from migraines a good majority of my life. I can recall my first migraine when I was probably five years old, six years old. I thought it was from being outside in the heat too long. I had come in, a headache, throwing up, the whole thing. And I started to have lots of those episodes through my life. And in my teen years, they picked up quite a bit when I was in high school. And it would really affect my ability to just engage and have normal life. You know, it just really kind of debilitated me. As I journeyed into young adulthood, I started to have children. I got married. I unfortunately had an early divorce, a young divorce. I got married very early and had a couple of children and then decided to um, journey on my own and had left that marriage and started into school. I wanted to get into nursing. And so I, you know, took a phlebotomy course and passed that and started working at Lakeview Hospital here in Bountiful. And while I was at the hospital, um, I was walking specimens from the emergency room back into the lab. And I was suffering from a migraine that day and had called out to my colleague. Uh, my intent was to just let him know I was going to lay down in the overflow in the emergency room because we were kind of slow. And I managed to get his name out and then found myself in the emergency room. I had passed out and the specimens had flown and everything else and my colleagues got me wheeled back into the emergency room and I kind of came to and I was being told what had happened and that they were going to be taking me in to do some testing to see what was going on. And, you know, doing the basic, you know, are you feeling okay? What's going on? And I just told them I have a really bad migraine and a lot of pain in my face. And they did a CT scan, 
and they showed me that there was nothing that they felt was remarkable, but they noticed that there was this structure or just some mass here, but they felt like it wasn't much to be worried about. The mass had me a little concerned. I was, you know, why aren't we talking about this? So I took my CT scans to my personal physician and asked him, is this something that could have been causing my migraines all this time? And he was concerned and ordered an MRI, and I went through a battery of testing. And um, he asked me to come into his office, and that's when he told me that it was a brain tumor that I had. And um, it was close to my brain stem. Oh, my goodness. And um, they felt very strongly that I needed to have surgery. And uh, at 24... With two small babies and freshly divorced, oh. I was a little nervous about venturing into surgery. Right. I was told to get to get my affairs in order. I had to draw up a living will. I had to decide where my babies were going to go if I didn't make it through the surgery. You know, what, what family member did I want to raise my children? And... Um, this was not my five-year plan. This was, this was not what I was anticipating. And so, and it had so really... young. I mean, you're just a young woman yourself. Yeah, 24 years right. old, two small babies. That's so young. Freshly divorced. You're trying to get your own life in order. And then you find out that you... The unimaginable. You have a brain tumor and it needs operation and it's close to your brain stem and... The prognosis really doesn't Terrifying. sound good. Terrifying. It was really difficult. And the hard thing was, is, you know, I was given a month to get my affairs in order. So you're sort of grateful for that time so you can get your house. You know, I remember those four weeks leading up to surgery. I was cleaning everything. I was scrubbing the walls. I was cleaning out cupboards. I was decluttering everything because I didn't know what to anticipate. And I just was trying to make a space for me and my kids for however long I was going to be down. It was really just truly unpredictable. At the time, my physician had only assisted in a couple of these surgeries. The tumor that I have is called an acoustic neuroma. It's a very rare tumor. It's a slow-growing tumor. And so there wasn't a lot of people who had experience with this. And so the surgery itself was a bit nerve-wracking. I was told where the tumor sits, it sits on my equilibrium nerve, my hearing nerve, and my facial nerve. And, um, you know, I was told that there might be paralysis in my face. You know, I did a lot of research on the placing of this tumor. And so, you know, I've seen pictures of people who had successful removal of the tumors, but it left quite a bit of damage, drooping, permanent drooping of the face, loss of hearing, and the cutting of the equilibrium nerve which makes for rehabilitation quite difficult, too. And so going in, there was all these possibilities of what could happen. As the time got closer, as I think many people go through when they are presented with something traumatic in their life, there's a whole range of grieving that happens. You go through the same type of grieving you would if you lost someone. You know, There's anger and there's bargaining and there's you know, reconciling and, and coming to terms with. And I went through all the phases. I went through the anger and 
the bargaining and all of it. 4.30 in the morning, I was ready to head to the hospital. I was doing my prep work. I had to use a certain type of shampoo to get ready for the prep surgery, and I was told that I would probably lose most of the hair on my head. They would have to shave off. I mean, it was just so traumatic, the whole event. And on top of it all, I lived here in Utah, and my family, my mother, my father, my siblings, most of my extended family all lived in Florida. So I was truly by myself, away from family, trying to manage a very a very big ordeal in my young life. Yeah, amazing. We went into surgery, and uh, while they were in surgery, they got 40% of the tumor removed, but I kept hemorrhaging, and um, the doctor had hit a blood vessel, and they were struggling to keep the bleeding under control. And uh, I had stroked and flipped it to a coma. And I'd remained in that coma for about four days. And when I came to, I had left-sided weakness and slurred speech. My speech was pretty bad. It was, you know, like you would hear from a stroke victim. I had to learn how to walk and talk and lots of therapy on swallowing. Um, I had paralysis on the left side of my throat. So swallowing, just even swallowing saliva was challenging. I still have some permanent damage and I will aspirate and choke, especially if I get excited when I'm talking. I have to be still careful about some of the damage that was done. I was in the hospital for about 10 days and intensive care unit, just getting my strength back, trying to get back on my feet. The pain was just horrendous. It was truly excruciating coming to, and I was battling, not wanting to be addicted to the pain medicines that I was giving and still trying to maintain some sort of comfort, you know, being comfortable enough to get through what just happened. I was discharged from the hospital and sent home to start my new life with this very broken body and two small children, and it was it was challenging, to say the least. I would spend the next 16 years bedridden and housebound. I wasn't able to return back to the workforce. I had to apply for disability and food stamps and housing. It was a bit of a blow to the ego when you're have a trajectory about where you want your life to go and how you're trying to improve the life for yourself and for your children. And one health crisis can disrupt that path. And that's what happened for me. It's such a tough story to hear. I mean, it, it, it sounds like it could be made for a movie, right? I mean, just crazy. I can't even imagine. You said 16 years. 16 years. That you were bedridden and housebound. I was first going to ask, who watched your two children for the 10 days you were in the ICU? I mean, gratefully you made it home and no one had to inherit them, but who watched them while you were gone? I had my daycare lady. My daycare lady was watching them during the day. I have an aunt who lived nearby who would take care of them at night. 
and then drop them off back to my babysitter again. But it was truly my babysitter who eventually would turn into being my sister-in-law. But it was my daycare provider who was just, she was just an an angel, Um, a blessing in your life. She was an angel. She truly was. She truly was. She stepped up in a way that I just, I hadn't experienced. Um, I was so used to being a strong, single mom, and this just really kind of knocked my feet out from under me, and it was truly a blessing to have such a sweet person step up and let me lean on her at a time when I was so, so worried about where my my babies would land. Yeah. You know? Incredible. Christine, let's take a quick break, and um, when we come back, we'll catch up with um, what happens after 16 years of being bedridden. We'll be right back. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. Christine, tell us about being bedridden. Is it because uh, of them getting in there and messing around with the tumor and it innervated nerves? Is it what what was it that was causing you to go from being able to work to being bedridden? A lot of it was the chronic pain. Um, I have diagnosis that came after the surgery. I have trigeminal neuralgia. It's a nerve pain condition. I have complex migraines. I have residual leftover pain from the surgery itself. And the combination of all those things just made it really difficult. I left surgery being deaf in one ear. I lost my hearing in that. And through the rehab, doing rehabilitation, I just didn't get my left-sided strength back. There was just a lot of issues that made it challenging. Any kind of head trauma that ever happened If I ever got bunked in the head, I'd be down for days because it would just trigger a pain attack that would last for days on end. There would be seasons in those 16 months that I wouldn't even know happened. I'd be down for several months at a time, and I'd wake up, and I would have missed all of summer. It would have been fall. And um, that happened to me a few times, and I just remember crying, feeling just so distraught that I missed a whole season. Didn't even realize that months had gone by, that I'd just been in bed for so long. Um, Tell me what's happening with your children during this time. Did you have that same daycare provider? Did you have anyone living with you or 
or helping? Because I can't I even had, imagine that situation from the motherhood no. side. It was really difficult. I had been dating. I started dating a friend that I had known before my surgery. And we got close during that time and started a relationship. And eventually we wound up getting married. And he had turned into my caregiver. He really stepped up to the plate being there for me and the kids. And it was a really taxing situation for all of us. It was a really a loving thing that he did to step into that role, but it had its challenges. Being a caregiver to chronically ill person, it, it wears you down. It truly just wears you That's down. That's an incredibly and long so it time. Was, it was. It was. And we, I think because of my own insecurities and feeling inadequate, um, we were not the type of family that would reach out to people. We didn't reach out to our in-laws or my in-laws. We didn't ask for help. We were just very independent. independent. Yeah. Really committed to trying to figure it out on your own. Exactly. Exactly. And I don't know if if that was shame-driven or if it was, you know, just not wanting to be burdensome to others. There is that component where you feel like you should be doing these things on your own. And so I know that we felt a sense of that in wanting to do. It leaves a stress on the family that truly isn't seen until years later. Honestly. Right. Yeah. And that, that kind of brings me to the, the years later, continuing this path of pharmaceutical drugs and failure after failure, 16 years of pharmaceutical failures. And when you're dealing with chronic pain, inevitably you're going to have depression. You're going to have all kinds of things that circle around your mental health when you are just constantly down and not feeling well, of course your mental stability is affected when your physical stability is compromised. And so I battled for years back and forth. It got to a point where I was eventually put on a fentanyl patch to help control and manage my pain. And for a short time, it seemed like that was effective. It, was, it seemed like it was giving me a little bit of a life back. I could be out in the world for extended periods of time and not just two or three hours. I could be out for four to six hours at a time. But then it got to be where that fentanyl patch wasn't effective. I was having breakthrough pain, and the doctors were giving me more Percocet and wanting to up my fentanyl patch, which made me scared because I'd already gone to the hospital to do a little bit of a detox off of my pharmaceutical drugs. I was on a pain management program because it was, I'm dealing with some intense pain, and the last thing you want to do as a patient is to make things worse for yourself. And so doctor shopping was definitely not something as a patient, I being in the medical profession, I knew to stay with my physician and, and stay the course and work with him. The idea of going back into the hospital to come down off of these um, narcotics and other pharmaceuticals, I was just tired of that. Withdrawals are awful. It's just so exhausting on the body and I was tired of it. At this particular point in time, I'd been down for about six weeks. I wasn't eating. I'd lost a tremendous amount of weight, and I was just exhausted with this pain cycle. It's about 2010, and I'm 39, almost 40 years old at the time, and I'd been dealing with this stuff for years at this point. And um, I had decided I wanted to try something unconventional for my nausea and to see if I could just get fluids down. I wanted to try cannabis. 
I wanted to try marijuana. And I uh, gone to my doctor and talked to him about seeing if that was something we could try. And at the time in our state, there was a lot of talk about spice and it being legal and you could get it at smoke shops and this, that, and the other. And I thought, well, maybe if I use something like that that's legal, it would be fine. Started to do research about it. And actually, my older teens had friends and they were telling me, you got to stay away from that stuff. It's not real cannabis. It's toxic. It's awful. And my doctor had told me, don't do anything illegal. Let me send you to another pain clinic, and they can start you on Marinol. Marinol is an FDA-approved drug that synthesized THC. THC is a cannabinoid that is in cannabis that helps with pain regulation and with nausea in cancer patients. And I thought, well, this is a pathway that I can do. I'll try this. They started me on that at the pain clinic. And for about two weeks, I got some relief again but the euphoria turned into something that, that wasn't controllable. It was, again, another failed therapy, and I was so frustrated. I was so frustrated. I was sharing this with one of my daughter's friends, and she says, well, you should try the real plant and not the synthesized stuff. And um, I got nervous thinking about that. So I started doing research online about Marinol to see if there was maybe a, a way to take this prescribed medication in a way that would be more effective for me, but I kept reading blogs about how it's helping cancer patients and using the real plant as opposed to the FDA drug. Well, I um, I decided I wanted to try it. I wanted to, to buy marijuana. And before I did, though, I had to make a really important phone call, and that was to my dad. My dad's a narcotics officer. And it, it, I don't mean to laugh, but I mean, the, the, yeah, the, the, the irony, you can't make it up, right? You can't. But I know this conversation was hard and heavy because, like, you, your chuckle is, you know, my dad is a narcotics officer. I have a brother that's 13 months younger than me. And in our teen years, my brother got kicked out of the house because of his marijuana use. It was a very big ordeal. It was distressing to see my brother turned away from my father because of that. And so even at almost 40 years old, a grown-ass woman I know it was, I was so worried about telling my dad, I want to try this thing that you have fought your entire career to prohibit in our country. <laughs> and I lined up my argument. I had an email. I sent him <laughs> all these studies about cannabis that I had stumbled across, and I was just ready to to present my case and my dad, when I told him what I wanted to do, I told him about the Marinol and he said, Chrissy, you should try. I'm hearing stuff down here in Florida about these stories and you would not believe all these elderly people are wanting to smoke weed <laughs> for all their ailments. <laughs> he said, you should try. You should really try. And that's what I did. I made my first attempt to find a bag of cannabis in Utah and that process itself was nerve-wracking and distressing and for me it was an experiment if this thing this this plant really could give me the release and maybe i could do something after i gave myself a two-week experiment i bought my first bag took my first hit and got instant release i was able to keep fluid down that night the next day i used it again and I was able to keep applesauce down. And for two weeks, I kept doing it. 
every day, every time I would take a, a toke off of my pipe. And I was just raw as raw can be. It was just a pipe and this cannabis. I was documenting the results I was having. I was documenting what pain level I was at when I started, what I felt during the intake of the medicine, and how long it lasted. And I was keeping track. And I presented that to my doctor, and I said, something's going on here. So I'm getting relief from this, and this is amazing, and I want to continue doing it. And my doctor, he didn't know what to say. He was just very nervous about me doing something that was illegal. But I didn't want to do something without my doctor's, not consent, because he didn't give me consent, but awareness. And I wanted him to know that this was the path I was trying and I continued that path. After two weeks of using it, I bought another bag. Four months later, I was driving again. Six months after that, I found my way to Capitol Hill and attended my first legislative session. And um, I was still using my cane, still using my handicap sticker. And I spent 45 you know, I, days I on forgot the that. I, when I first met you, you were using a cane. You know, it's been so long since I've seen you with a cane. I, I totally forgot that. Yeah. That's it's, crazy. It's crazy to think that it's been so long. But, um, yeah, that first session, uh, people, of course, politics has its own little clique. You know, people who have been in politics a long time all know each other. So when a new face shows up on the Hill, people want to know who you are and what you're doing there. And of course, being young at 39 and having a cane, people were a little confused as to, you know, who I was and then what was going on with me physically. Yeah. And I started sharing my story with people, a lot of the lobbyists up there, and I got a, a lot of the same responses. What an amazing story. You will never pass medical cannabis in Utah. That will never happen. Yep. And, um, Michelle was one of the first people that I met um, because she was part of the Women's Legislative League, right, yeah. Michelle? Yeah, Women's State Legislative and, Council. Yes, and we shared, me and another lady shared our story about our journey with cannabis. And we found a legislator who was willing to write some policy, and it started the conversation here in Utah. Yeah. We continued... You know, I started my nonprofit, Truth, which is Together for Responsible Use in Cannabis Education. We're a nonprofit focused on raising awareness about cannabis, the history, the science, the policies around it, and the patient's perspective, you know, how these things affect a patient on a day-to-day life. So over the next several years, we kept trying to raise awareness with the legislators about patients who could benefit from this. We connected some of our legislators with the research, some of them with some of the doctors who were involved with the national efforts. And slowly, eventually, over time, a groundswell in Utah was created. I was uh, one of the chief sponsors for a ballot initiative here that pushed for that policy change. And we worked with people across the aisle because, honestly, Human suffering doesn't know any label. This isn't a Democrat issue. This isn't a Republican issue or a Libertarian issue. This is a human issue. This is a human rights issue. It's it's talking about alleviating suffering. And that's what it's done. It's alleviated my suffering. I am pharmaceutical free. I was able to use cannabis 
to come off of my fentanyl, to come off of my Percocet, my MS cotton, all my antidepressants, everything. I'm off of all of it except using cannabis through our legal state program, which I might add was an amazing thing to be part of, is to be part of that groundswell and see patients now having some access to some cannabis. That's so amazing. We need to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about that effort on Capitol Hill, but also we want to know what resilience means to you and how you manage to get through 16 years of being bedridden and being in intense pain and how do you make the choice to get through just one more day. We'll be right back. We're back. Christine, an amazing story. I'm so glad you came on today and that you're willing to share your story with our listeners. You know, we say it all the time on the show, be kind. You don't know what other people are dealing with in their own lives. We close every show out with that. And it's true. And we don't realize that even our neighbors who may now be up and about and walking and participating and maybe They're known for doing something as being a part of an initiative to legalize medical marijuana or who knows what else. But a lot of us just don't even know from what that sprung forth from, right? Such an amazing story to be better in 16 years. That is a long time. I know when I'm sick for a couple days and I can't get out of my bed, it's like I'm going insane. I need my ADD just doesn't allow me to (laughs) want to be like you said that mental health component of your physical health yeah yeah so how did you get through it how did you build resiliency during that time period well I think resiliency is an interplay between genetics and experience honestly it's a bit of a fulcrum you know the more positive experiences you have in your life it can help balance out that scale so for me I I have to thank my parents and the connections that I had as I was growing up. I had some positive experiences in my life that helped me balance the scale with the other experiences. I wouldn't say they were bad, but negative experiences. You know, you you learn lessons from both things. I had some trauma growing up in my life, but I was always able to find those people that gave me just a little bit more encouragement to help balance that scale. And so over the years, as I, you know, was bedridden, there would be that kind doctor or that nurse or that other patient who was in the doctor's office with me that would offer those little words of encouragement. And I think being open to that still being possible was what kept me going. I wasn't content with this being it. This is your existence. This is how it's always going to be. I held on to hope that things would improve, that there would be something more to look forward to. My children were really, truly my saving grace. I I remember there was a point in time during this sort of coming in and out, um, I was still struggling with being in the coma and not. I was, this is going to sound a little strange, but I, I was given a bit of a choice of whether I wanted to come back. 
um, there was a lot of pain in that body. And the thing that, that brought me back was my children. I wanted more time. I wanted more time with them. That was what helped drive my resilience is the desire to be strong and see those little smiles and be around to see them grow older and have beautiful lives. It gave me the drive to keep going. It's it's just such a hard story to hear. I, you know, I love you and I've had these conversations with you about that time and you know, even you sharing it today and you're, you're giving us the 30,000 foot view, look at a big chunk of your life and you can still hear all of the emotion that's caught from that time period. And I know that you love your children dearly and desperately. And I also know the struggles that you've had because of the feelings of what you were able to give or not give to them because of this time in your life. And that's, you know, as a mom, I totally get that, you know? Yeah. It's hard. You do for me, the struggle of not being able to be there for birthdays or recitals or baseball games or parent teacher conference. Those moments that your children look back and go, mom was there for this. I wasn't always there for that and how do you reconcile that with your your children and the hard thing for them too is they know that I have physical limitations and so they battled being understanding and still being hurt that they were missing out on having a, a mother that was present entirely for their lives there right. are chunks of time that my kids will tell stories And I don't remember. I have memory issues because of the damage, the brain damage that was done. And kids will talk about an incident that happened or an event, and I have no recollection of it. And to look in their eyes and just see that pain, that this was a happy moment for them or a truly sad moment for them, And I have no recollection of their pain. I have no way of feeling empathy for them or even saying I'm sorry or even saying wasn't that a wonderful experience. There's so much to going through this type of illness, this type of chronic pain. It leaves a wound that's hard. It leaves them, sorry, I'm having a hard time trying to articulate it. It's an emptiness, and um, it's easy to fall prey to those feeling sorry for yourself kind of moments, and I'm always reminded that I'm here. I'm alive. Life isn't perfect for any one of us. We all deal with trauma. You guys are putting on a show of amazing humans who have been so resilient through so many different life traumas. Right. It's amazing to me that the resiliency of just the human spirit, you know, you hear about these stories and running my nonprofit, I was out into our space trying to find other patients and their stories. And so I've sat at bedsides in hospitals. I've sat with patients who are on hospice and dying and listened to their family stories and hearing my own story 
listening to the caregivers, and I could hear my husband's story as I'm listening to this caregiver who's crying because they've missed so much work because they've needed to be home with their spouse, and now they're in financial dire straits. Like, these are stories that I've endured myself. But listening to how many people in our state struggle every day. Michelle, was it you that said that we have to be kind because we don't know yeah, we what just people's don't, stories are? We don't know the stories. We don't know what people are dealing with. And, you know, I've, I've shared don't. this several times on this podcast that I was sitting in my car and I was crying and I was ugly crying. And I was looking at the people around me and I had noticed the different faces around me. And I realized... I was embarrassed because I was ugly crying, but then I realized some people are dealing with other things as well. You know, I could see someone who was talking on the phone. I could see someone upset themselves. I could see someone just, you know, spaced out. Anyway, I you see these different, when you pay attention, like when it's a great time to do it in your car because people all think nobody's looking at me in my car. We're all going to where we're getting to. But if you stop as a stoplight and you start looking around at what's going in the cars around you, it'll also give you a good insight as to why we have so many accidents and deaths on our road. There's a lot of distractions, right? And the the distraction is life. We're all dealing with some really big things out there. And the reality is, is it may not be as big as a death. It may not be as big as somebody who's bedridden for 16 years. It may not be a long-term thing, but when it's going on in your life, it's big. And it's big because you're dealing with it right now. Well, and I love what you said, Christine, about resilience being kind of that interplay between your genetics and your experience. We talk a lot about resilience being like a muscle. And here we have this muscle. And unfortunately, the more you use it, the stronger it gets and the more you're able to use it. But nobody wants to have to use it in the first place. I love so much of what you said. And our stories obviously are different from each other. But it really resonated with me when you said that about missing pieces of your children's life. I feel like in my own grief, there have been times when I, even if I'm physically present with my kids, um, you know, has, has my emotional status let me really be there for my kids? Are there things that they've experienced in the last few years that maybe I'm oblivious to because I've been lost in my own head and my own struggles? So really appreciate you mentioning that. And then I, my heart goes out to your husband and all those who are caregivers. I'm so grateful that you have him. I'm grateful that he's been able to. They're divorced now, but oh. yeah. Well, but through those years. He's you still, know, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's that, still an amazing part of my life. And yeah. um, we're wonderful co-parents. And that's not always Thank the case. You. Kudos, kudos mm-hmm. that you can do that through yeah. the struggle because sometimes that's the first thing to fail. So I'm grateful that you've shared this story with us today so much about resilience for such a long time. And that's where the relentless part comes in. You know, if only we needed to be resilient for a day or resilient for one trial, right? resilient for one thing. But thank you for teaching us all you've shared today. Thank you so much, Christine. If you like what you've heard, you. you can subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating and a review. And if you know someone who has a story about something that's gone on in their life and you see them as being resilient, you can nominate them to be on our show. You can tell us them about us. Have them contact us. Send us an email at rrpodcast at ksl.com. You can find us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient or on Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. And remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles other people are facing in their lives. Take care, everybody.
Bye. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.